This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Winter snows have given way to late winter, or really early spring rains. The melting snow saturated the ground, which has led to high water and flooding in some areas here. Some may recall my bulb planting in the fall. I scouted out the yard yesterday and found crocuses I planted starting to pop out of the ground. I'm hoping for initial blooms this week. There will certainly bring a feel that spring is on the way. The hyacinths and daffodils are also starting to break through the ground. March should bring plenty of flowers. I'm keeping an eye on the forsythia, too. As I mentioned last week, Cultural Debris has found a home for show notes on Front Porch Republic. And I again thank FPR and Jeffrey Bilbro for their kind invitation to offer that as a home base. I've also just set up a Patreon for those who find Cultural Debris particularly worthwhile. You can go to patreon.com forward slash cultural debris or simply click the link in show notes. Support levels start at only $2 a month and support will help pay for hosting fees and equipment purchases to keep the podcast lights on, so to speak. Go take a look at the support levels, which I had some fun in naming. Anyone who signs up before the end of March will be entered to receive a free copy of Holly Ordway's Tolkien's Modern Readings, which is the book we discuss in today's episode. It's a great book and one any Tolkien fan would want to have. At the end of March, I'll choose a patron at random to receive the book. Another way to help the podcast is to give a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts. You can do it while you listen, and it helps others find cultural debris. A book came through my Twitter feed last week, The Tears of Christ, Meditations for Lent by St. John Henry Newman. I immediately ordered it as a Lenten devotional. It's published by the Augustine Institute and collects different writings and sermons by St. Newman and arranged with a reading for each day. Our poem this episode comes from South African poet and swashbuckler Roy Campbell. Campbell was a friend of Russell Kirk's and of J.R.R. Tolkien's. You'll hear about him later in the interview. Two years ago, the last time I was in Paris, I came across the Abbey Bookshop in the Latin Quarter, which specializes in English language books. Campbell is an author I always check for, but seldom find. However... Tucked into the shelves there, I came across a copy of his collection, Sons of the Mistral, published in 1941 by Faber and Faber. I was able to secure it just prior to closing on a cold January night. This poem is called The Zebras. From the dark woods that breathe of fallen showers, harnessed with level rays and golden rains. The zebras draw the dawn across the plains, wading knee-deep among the scarlet flowers. The sunlight, zithering their flanks with fire, flashes between the shadows as they pass, barred with electric tremors through the grass, like wind along the golden strings of a lyre. 
into the flushed air, snorting rosy plumes that smolder round their feet in drifting fumes, with dove-like voices call the distant fillies, while round the herds the stallion wheels his flight, engine of beauty vaulted with delight to roll his mare among the trampled lilies. My guest is Holly Ordway, the Word on Fire Institute. Her new book, the first from the new Word on Fire academic imprint, is Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. It's an important work that genuinely breaks new ground in Tolkien studies. Holly was kind enough to chat about the book and about J.R.R. Tolkien, certainly a favorite of mine, and I suspect yours too. Dr. Holly Ordway, welcome to Cultural Debris. Oh, well, nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you coming on. You are a fellow for Faith and Culture at Word on Fire. Tell me what uh, what you do at Word on Fire and tell me a little bit about Word on Fire. So I'm the fellow of Faith and Culture for the Word on Fire Institute, which is the more or less educational um, branch within the overall um, Word on Fire Catholic Ministries, which is devoted to evangelization, um, you know, proclaiming the gospel, helping people to understand the faith and to be able to share it. Uh, and then within the Institute, um, as fellow of Faith and Culture, I do a lot with you know understanding um, our modern culture, and you know my special focus um, as an apologist is on imaginative apologetics. You know how does how does the imagination help us to understand, you know, gain meaning for concepts, including concepts about Christianity? How do we convey them, uh, especially through the arts? And so that's sort of my my particular focus as the fellow of Faith and Culture. And of course, you know, my interest in Tolkien, that's the literary critical um, branch of my, uh, my academic life. Um, and that overlaps, you know, nicely, you know, with, with, with that as well. Well, I'm a, I'm a big admirer of Word on Fire and, uh, and especially Bishop Barron. His, uh, his work, especially his, his video work has been a lot to me uh, over the, especially the past several months. But you, you have published here a new book that is the very first uh, book from a new imprint from Word on Fire, Word on Fire Academic. Yes, I'm very excited about that because uh, you know Word on Fire has already publishing books in several different lines. You know some excellent books, um, but this is the new endeavor, the academic line for books that are you know advancing scholarship in their respective fields. And so Tolkien's Modern Reading is is the launch title for that, and I'm really proud that they've that they've put that as the as the premier title. Um, there's other good things coming up, including Michael Ward has a book coming up um, that is all about C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. So that's the next title in the academic line. So stay, stay tuned for that as well. It's a, oh, it's a really great line. Well, I, I, it certainly sets a, a promising tone for the direction of, of the academic uh, uh, imprint that they've, they've set here. How did you uh, come to be interested particularly in Tolkien? Well, that is a question that you know, almost I don't know where to start. At least 30 years back it goes, <laughs> possibly more, because I have been reading Tolkien ever since I was a little girl. Uh, you know, I, I fell in love with The Hobbits, with The Lord of the Rings. You know, when I when I was a girl, I, I don't really know when I first read them. I only remember rereading them. 
Uh, and then as a teenager, I read his uh, great essay on fairy stories. He just came across it almost by chance. Uh, and that, I think, probably helped plant the seeds for my future career as a literary critic. Little did I know. Um, and then I went on, did my dissertation um, on fantasy and had it centered, you know, kind of around the Lord of the Rings, understanding it. And so, you know, that was a key, key piece. And then that eventually got me thinking about, okay, well, if I understand the, the big picture of where the modern fantasy novel came from, I wonder what Tolkien had read of those earlier works. You know, I wonder what he thought about them. And, and about 10 years ago, um, that was when I started picking up that question and saying, well, I wonder what he had read of these other books. Did he read anything of modern literature? Uh, let me find out. And lo and behold, there was a lot to find out. Right. And, and your, your book is uh, comprehensive in its, in its breakdown of, of these different things that, that Tolkien read that are modern. And we'll we'll put quotation marks around that. You use 1850 as as kind of your marking point. That is that books that would be current or recent for Tolkien in in his own life. Exactly, um, and that really has been a, a very interesting point because one of the things we don't realize is that even over 50 or 60 or 70 years, there's a lot of of books that just get forgotten. Um, they might even have been bestsellers um, at a certain point, and now they're so utterly out of print that people don't even know the title or the author. And it turned out to be a, a very interesting part of my research to go back and, and find out more about the literary context that Tolkien was in. And there are so many titles that, that were say, mentioned in his letters that you know, were known. They're right there in plain sight. These are books that Tolkien even mentions as being important to him. And they even would just get mentioned as a book. Okay, he read that, but no one had actually looked at what that book was um, and and what it meant to Tolkien and what it meant to people of, of the time. And in several instances, um, a writer called J.H. Shorthouse um, was a total you know, best-selling author in Tolkien's day. Who now has read John Inglesant? Um, not many people. Not, not a whole lot of people, no. But it was a massive bestseller. I mean, for decades, people were talking about it in newspaper articles just with the assumption that, like, of course, everybody had read John Inglesant. I mean, come on. Um, the, the author got um, tea with the prime minister. His book was such a hit. And this is a book that Tolkien himself mentioned several times as being significant to him. And I was able to discover the exact location of where the author um, Shorthouse lived. And Tolkien, as a boy, would have walked by the house every day as he went to mass at the Birmingham Oratory. It was a feature of his immediate neighborhood, and he was a, a major, you know, popular hero. So that was what, you know, helped me think about what did this author mean to Tolkien and to realize that he probably was more significant than we would think by just seeing a, a name of some author we'd never heard of. Right. You, you look at someone, obviously, and we'll talk, I'm sure, about somebody like Lewis, who is significant to us because it's still popular or, or other other writers that he would have read Chesterton and uh, McDonald and so forth who are still well known uh, and had an impact on him but if we look at the if you look at the bestseller list today or, or look at the bestseller list of 10 years ago 20 years ago which of those books that were that were heralded are still paid much attention to, and and the reality is not a lot of them. The same thing happened then, and and yet 
it's easy it's easy to forget that it's easy to forget that people lived in the moment just as we do and it really helped me to start to unravel some of the the mystery surrounding why people tend to think of Tolkien as stuck in the past. Um, a very pervasive assumption. Um, just it pervades the popular view of Tolkien. It pervades a lot of the scholarship in Tolkien. Not all of it. There there are some good exceptions. But the general assumption amongst scholars even has been, well, he might have read the occasional modern book, but he really didn't care about modern literature at all. Um, and I think part of the, the contributing factor to that is that if we, if we, it's kind of a selection bias because, you know, McDonald, George McDonald is famous today. He's, he's well known today. Why? Because C.S. Lewis loved him so much and brought him back into attention. And so we know about McDonald. Um, he's a fantasy writer. Or Lord Dunsany, who wrote um, some fantasy novels. We know of him as somebody that Tolkien read, or at least knew slightly, Um what do we know of Dunsany's work? Just the fantasy titles. But one of the things that I discovered is that Dunsany was actually better known as a writer of plays um, in his day. He, he Even W.B. Yeats commissioned him to do a radio drama. Um, he was a big deal um, in terms of radio um, and, 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 pl and playwriting. And Tolkien knew his work well um, and knew it, you know, more than just we might might think the occasional fantasy novel. So again, it it kind of broadens out that view that when Tolkien, for instance, was um, trying to get the Silmarillion published, he was able to, you know, kind of put it like, okay, well, it's it's similar to the work of Dunsany, and it was actually kind of a clever, you know, positioning device because his publisher was also the publisher of Dunsany's books. So oh. Tolkien would have known that, yeah, you know, this guy Dunsany, he's a reliable mid-list author. He sells books. Here's my Silmarillion, which is quite similar in some respects to Dunsany's work. You know, I felt that it, it actually sheds some light. You know, Tolkien is often considered to have just completely fumbled the publication of the Silmarillion. And he did make some pretty big gaffes with his publisher, um, almost resulting in the Lord of the Rings not being published. But I, I think that his knowledge of Dunsany and his sort of mentioning Dunsany as an example of like, you know, my work is like this author who is, you know, a reliable seller and by, you know, by his example of it, it kind of shows a little bit more savvy than we have been tending to think of him in terms of publishing. Right. right. And that's one of the, one of the, certainly one of the biggest impressions and obviously you know, the point of, of, of your book, but one of the biggest impressions that it leaves is that, that Tolkien was not somebody who was out to lunch as it were, as, as sort of the popular, the popular understanding is, but that he was really did have his finger on the pulse of, of writing, not only, from the time of his youth, but but really throughout his life, I was surprised at some of the authors who who popped up. I was surprised at really a lot of the authors who popped up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was reading. He read James Joyce's *Finnegans Wake* when just the first little bit of it, the *Anne Olivia Pluribel* section, had been published. Um, we know this because he made some notes about Joyce um, and even transliterated the name *Anne Olivia Pluribel*, who's a character in *Finnegans Wake*. He transliterated it into Elvish. So he's interested in what Joyce is doing um, and the page of notes that he made, he, you know, he's, he's, you know, slightly critical of Joyce, but he's taking him seriously. He's engaging with what Joyce is doing as a modernist. Um, and well, again, looking at context and chronology, he's doing it when it's first come out. It's a new book. 
Um, so he's again, like you said, he's got his finger on the pulse. Here's a new book by this, you know, weird modernist guy, and Tolkien's reading it and he's taking it seriously. So I think I think we can say pretty confidently, as as you as you make the case in your book, that Tolkien has not been well served by his biographers over the years. No, he is not, and therein hangs a tale as uh, as I try to unpack in uh, in Tolkien's modern reading, because one of the major reasons why the assumption is so pervasive is that um, his first, his only current authorized biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, says flat out in the biography that Tolkien read very little modern fiction and took no serious notice of it. Boom. Well, that's simply not true. The, you know, the evidence is, is, is now in front of us. It's not the case. But Carpenter says this, um, and not not surprisingly, quite reasonably, people have taken it as true. Well, he's the biographer, right? But it turns out, and I, I don't, you know, this is all in the book, but there's a lot of reasons to, to see that Carpenter actually had quite a bias. He actually didn't like Tolkien very much. He actually quite disliked all of the Inklings. He's, he's on record as saying some quite negative things about them. Uh, and he went into writing the biography of Tolkien um, you know, with an idea that he would write it as a slapstick, that's his own word, um, and that he considered Tolkien's upbringing, for instance, to be rather uptight. Again, that's his, that's Carpenter's word. Um, and that in an interview, Carpenter once remarked that he felt that a biography was really about the biographer. Okay. Oh, well, that's, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And if that's the case, and again, this is what Carpenter said, if every biography is, according to him, about the biographer, well, Carpenter had quite a chip on his shoulder about the Oxford academic scene and about Christianity in general, because Carpenter was the son of the Anglican Bishop of Oxford, but had become an atheist by the time he was 21, and had some serious issues with the whole idea of academia. He, he kind of is very snide about Tolkien's academic work, called it a dead subject. So it's, it's kind of complicated, you know, his views on Tolkien, and he manages to become, through some coincidence, frankly, and his own wangling, become the authorized biographer. And if you think about it, you know, he, the biography is very well written. It's very readable, but he doesn't actually give sources for his material. He doesn't tell us where he gets his information from. And there's a lot, a lot of interpretation in it that has been taken as fact. Um, and I was able to untangle quite a lot of that, you know, tracing it back and discovering, for instance, that, that Tolkien's views about Narnia, about C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, are quite different. They're quite a lot milder than what Carpenter presents. Carpenter's simply incorrect in his presentation. So we have this, this sort of distortion from his early biography that has just cast a huge shadow on all of our interpretations um, of Tolkien. And I think it's time to really step back and kind of get some fresh views. And some scholars have already done that in the last you know, decade, 20 years. And I'm very grateful for their work, especially Diana Glyer, John Garth. Um, there've been other scholars calling you know, for a fresh view. It's time, yeah. Well, it certainly seems like it is. I mean, obviously the work that you have done here is uh, extremely uh, revisionist, but but in a good way, sympathetically revisionist, but you, you aren't, you aren't just uh, writing sort of wishful thinking. You've documented all of this stuff out very, uh, very carefully, and it's really, it's really amazing uh, 
how how broad and I'll say Catholic, lowercase c there, uh, Tolkien was in his reading, as you were talking about with Joyce and so forth. It's not it's not simply modern authors we might think he would read, which there's a lot of that, of course, but there there's a lot of people we wouldn't ever think of that he has read. Exactly. Um, and the, the neat thing about this project, I mean, I've, this has been a 10-year project. And when I went into it, I simply wanted to answer the question for myself, what had he read? And I, I assumed that there wouldn't be much. I even remember the first time I got past um, two dozen titles, I thought, wow, I'm really getting somewhere. <laughs> Landed up with you know almost 150 authors and more than 200 titles. But I thought, wow, this is I'm, I'm up to like 24. Hey, I'm, I'm in good shape. Uh, and I just kept looking um, and finding more things and more things. And so it was actually during the process of my research that I realized, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. He actually has read a lot more than I thought. And as you say, in a variety of genres, I mean, I, I knew he read children's literature. He read a lot more of it than I realized. Um, adventure fiction, okay, not too surprising, but he also read quite widely in American authors, um, you know, Sinclair Lewis, um, Wadsworth, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, he enjoyed mystery novels. He was a huge fan of Agatha Christie, um, you know, satirical novels, um, you know, all sorts of things. Modern poets, you know, Dylan Thomas, Roy Campbell, lots of authors, again, that, that you wouldn't necessarily have expected. Yeah, Sinclair Lewis was certainly uh, a surprise to me as just one example, uh, just not somebody that you would that you would anticipate that he would interact with uh, very much. But uh, but there are a lot of those. I, of course, you were going into this with a couple of, of big, I guess, um, hurdles to get through, which uh, one of which is that that his letters, other than a selection, are not available. Uh, they've not been published and they're not available for research, is my understanding. And the second is that his library contents have not been published. Is that correct? Right. And it's not so much they haven't been published because people are holding back. It's that his library was dispersed. Um, he sold off many of the volumes or gave them away even during his lifetime. And then after his death, the library was broken up. So there is no collection of his books, which is just breaks my heart. It would be so oh, great to have that. Awful. <laughs> so, so it's been a lot of you know trying to track down individual titles here and there um, and and kind of piece it together. And so that's it's been very much a kind of mosaic. And of course, the, the collected letters are not a collected letters. They're just a, a sampling. And that, again, was a, a discovery. There are only 354 pieces of letters in his volume of letters. Um, many of those are, are only like a paragraph or so out of context. So we don't have the context. Um, and it turns out that Tolkien was, um, even as Carpenter himself put it, one of the last great English letter writers. And oh. there were thousands, <laughs> thousands of letters that he wrote. Uh, so I would just, um, would just love to see even a larger selected letters. But I mean, we see, you know, Walter Hooper's um, three volume collected letters for C.S. Lewis absolutely you know, revolutionized Lewis scholarship and gave us this beautifully well-rounded view of, of Lewis. Imagine if we could have the same for Tolkien. Um, it would be fantastic. And and I think it would, it would, you know, shed a positive light because, you know, one of the things you, you work in an author 
And, you know, you don't know, are you going to like this guy more or less after you finish (laughs) researching him? And I have had various experiences on authors that I've researched. Some of them I finished researching. I thought, okay, well, I don't like you very much now. But Tolkien, the more that I have dug into his life, his writings, his letters, the more I have genuinely admired him as a person. You know, he'll be the first one to admit that he wasn't perfect. He was actually quite self-critical. And, you know, he certainly had his flaws. But taken as a whole, what a marvelously just good man. Um, so I, I would love to see, you know, a larger, you know, letters in part just because he's he's a good role model, frankly. He's just a good all-round family man, friend, you know, colleague, uh, just a, a thoroughly good egg. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you see, you see, uh, of course, a lot of, a lot of uh, historical figures have had you know, many, de- many years and sometimes multiple decade projects of publishing their letters. Uh, there's the, uh, the ongoing series of T.S. Eliot's letters uh, that, uh, that are being published. One would think that uh, with the resources that the Tolkien estate, one would think would have, <laughs> that, they might, that they might be interested in putting those out because you know there would be a huge market for it. Uh, all sorts of people would be very interested in those, but I think considering the um, sort of the biographical baggage you have, and by and th- by that I mean the the actual biographies that have been done of, of Tolkien, which have not been sympathetic, you would think that they would be interested in kind of setting the record straight, as you were saying, just letting people see the kind of individual he was, and of course. Uh, some someone like you and the the work you're doing here with with this, uh, who knows how many more books you would you would find sorting through those. Yeah, I mean the the you know one of the fascinating things is to realize that the titles that I have pulled together in Tolkien's Modern Reading are really just the tip of the iceberg, and they sh- I've I've focused I've only talked about books and authors whom we have evidence, hard evidence that he knew. He, he knew the book, he mentions it, he's read it, he's owned it, he gave it as a copy to somebody else, that I have some concrete connection to say, Tolkien knew this book. Um, so if we, we have so many, based on our relatively limited and circumscribed information, it should tell us that the picture is even much broader than, than we think. It's, it's, there's a lot more that we just haven't found yet. There are a couple of of myths that you're overturning here. One, uh, one of course, is sort of Tolkien as mod as a modern uh, that we've already talked about. The other one was one that I hadn't really thought of uh, that but that you talk about, which is the myth, as you called it, of, of Tol Lewis. That is this amalgamation that we've created of of Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis, sort of ascribing the traits of one to the other, and that 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 uh, has caused us to misunderstand the kind of individual that Tolkien was. Because there's been a lot of, I guess, I feel like there's been more Lewis scholarship biographically than there has been Tolkien, and that maybe it's been somewhat, Tolkien has been somewhat obscured by Lewis that way. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, there certainly has been more biographical work on on Lewis, in, in part because the materials are more available. Um 
Uh, but yeah, there's been a persistent kind of conflating of the two of them. And they certainly had many things in common, um, but they had many things that they were very different. You know, Tolkien was was married for, you know, 50 odd years and Lewis only was married for three years at the at near the end of his life. Um, Tolkien had four children and Lewis, you know, no children's own, just you know, the two stepchildren of, uh, of, of Joy's at, at the end of his life. Um, you know, Tolkien was a Catholic. Um, Lewis was an Anglican. Um, certainly they had the shared Christian faith, but they also, you know, had, had these differences. Um, even things like their views about technology, and this is where they're often folded together. Um, Lewis can, I think, legitimately be called pretty anti-technology. He flat out refused to use a typewriter. He used a dip pen his entire life. And uh, when he needed to type a letter, he got his brother warning to do it. Um, so he, he was flat out opposed to typewriters, said you know nasty things about them, that they destroy your sense of rhythm. But Tolkien um, was a bit of a typewriter nerd. He had several, um, he, he actually even composed um, and revised his fiction on typewriters. Um, he talks knowledgeably about different key, you know, inserts you can put to make different philological symbols. Um, he drove a car, whereas Lewis never learned to drive a car. Um, there's a lot of instances there where Tolkien turns out to have a much more nuanced view of technology and is much more willing to use it than Lewis does. And that was a very, very interesting thing to discover. Right. It, it was something that, that surprised me. It's, I will admit, it's not something I had thought about necessarily consciously, but just the sort of, uh, I guess, popular understanding of the kind of person Tolkien was as just sort of the, the doddering, old-fashioned uh, Luddite, maybe, uh, that, that none of that is really true. Not that he wasn't certainly a traditionalist, which obviously he was, but that he all, but he, he was willing to, to work with, with what was out there and was interested in it. It wasn't just simply a concession. A lot of these things he was interested in and was interacting with. And that's one of the, I think one of the important uh, things to take away from your book. Right. Because, you know, the fact that he, you know, saw out the use of audio recorders to, uh, to, you know, make voice recordings, he wanted, for instance, he wanted to be able to read the part of Sir Gawain in a BBC radio um, production of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, and he actually, you know, practiced on an audio recorder to, to do a good job. He didn't get picked in the end, but he, but he tried, you know, that sort of thing, you know, gives a very different view. You know, audio recorder might seem like, you know, not, not particularly high tech now, but it sure was then. So I actually, think, you know, if Tolkien were alive today, he'd be, I think, perfectly happy to be on a Zoom call. You know, I, he'd, he'd figure it out. <laughs> right, sure. Yeah. I, I, we may even be able to get him on the podcast if he were around. But. Exactly. And he was willing to do radio. He would he would do podcasts. Um, and I, it's interesting, though, that even in his lifetime, people were trying to pigeonhole him as this sort of Luddite figure. Um, and it's quite interesting, an interview that he did um, where the interviewer kept trying to kind of feed him questions that would get anti-technology answers like, like, oh, I, you know, what do you think about cars? And, and Tolkien says, oh, cars, you know, I love driving. Them. I love riding in them. I like driving them. And the interviewer was kind of like, what? And then Tolkien goes on to explain, it's the road makers who create a mess. They blast their road to the countryside and make a mess in the process. Um, and again, this interviewer asks him, well, you know, what do you think about industry? Again, in the assumption that he's going to be, you know, blasting all industry. And Tolkien comes back and says, well, it depends what you mean. It can be done well. It can be done badly. You've got big factories, little factories. Um, it, 
he got a very nuanced view and he doesn't actually have this total nostalgic view of the past. He's willing to say, you know, that there was deforestation in medieval, you know, in medieval England that devastated the landscape, just as there's also devastation now. It's the misuse of technology that he objects to whenever it happens. And that just gives a very different perspective. You can't just pigeonhole him as like, oh yeah, nostalgic tree hugging guy. No, no, he's he's really got his perspective of like, it's the misuse of technology that's the problem. He's not living in some nostalgic fantasy land. Well, one of the one of the key points I think you made uh, about sort of the this this Tolkien Lewis um, uh, amalgamation that people have made is, is that Tolkien was actually very interested in current events to the point where where he was subscribed to three different newspapers, whereas Lewis literally had no clue about about modern uh, modern events or current events at all. But Tolkien was very engaged with with world affairs and uh and what was going on yeah and again this is a, a, a conflation that happens all the time because tolkien you know, lewis really did completely stay oblivious to the news he could make the most amazing just clueless gaffes sometimes you know he, and he kind of took it as a, a point of pride that he didn't read the newspapers and uh, he says somewhere that he can count on if he really needs to know something about the current events one of his friends will tell him well you know what maybe he was thinking of tolkien because tolkien was up to date on current events um and in fact told one of his interviews viewers that he took three newspapers and that he was very interested in what was going on in the world. And he even specifies in the, in the local area, in this country and internationally. So it's quite interesting to see that, yeah, Tolkien's paying attention to the news and he does it his whole life. Um, in his very last years, you know, as a, as a widower living at Merton College, he used to have conversations with um, his, his scout who would come in to help prepare meals and, you know, look after him. And he recalls that Tolkien always like to talk about the events of the day, what was going on, you know, just anything that was going on he was interested in talking about. You make the point, and, and of course, uh, w- when you look at, at the years that he was born to to the uh, time he died in, what, seven, 73, I believe? Yes. Um, you know, he, he was born a Victorian. He was born during the time uh, that, um, that Sherlock Holmes was popular and was being written. And then he dies after after man has walked on the moon, and uh, you know during for, from an American perspective during the Nixon administration, you know. So um, that's that's a long time, and that's seeing a lot of change. That that is um, an extraordinary life uh, to to see what goes on uh, during during that life, and an incredible life to keep up with from his perspective. Yeah, I mean it's it's really kind of shocking to think you know, you know as you say from Queen Victoria to Nixon from you know right. from most most transportation being you know by by horse or a very slow train to supersonic jets. Yeah, that's a lot to live through in one lifetime um, and two world wars. You know, he fought in the trenches in the first world war and he had sons in, you know, the front lines, you know, fighting in the second world war. So he, he was right in the thick of it for really a, a very tumultuous and an eventful century. And 
it, if you think of it that way, how could he not be interested in and engaged with the literature of that time? If you put him in the historical and cultural context, yeah, of course he's going to be interested. And I think that helps explain the power of his work. Because that that was another piece of the puzzle, you know, as I was starting this project. You know, The Lord of the Rings, it's it's set in this fantasy land, you know, elves and dwarves and a quest and all that. How is it that this speaks so powerfully to the 20th century, to the 21st century? You know, he's got these themes, you know, of, of the machine, of totalitarianism, of power and its abuse, you know, of the suffering and dealing with it. These are really themes and ideas that resonate with the modern condition. It's almost inconceivable that he could have possibly written something that powerful with, with a, you know, sort of his head stuck in the past. So it makes a lot more sense if we realize, oh, yeah, he was definitely a medievalist. He's definitely putting all of this through the lens of his of his medieval interests and, and profound expertise in medieval literature and in languages. But he is also rooted very deeply in the literature and the culture of his time. That's how he understands it so well. Right. And that's a point you make in the book that that struck me uh, in placing him sort of firmly within his own his own context uh, of his uh, of the time he wrote in, but but that his his work, uh, especially the Lord of the Rings, is, is sort of the the great magnum opus. That it is it, it's not something to be viewed as be viewed kind of in a vacuum as 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 um, not connected to the time it was written in, which I think is sometimes a temptation, perhaps, but that it was really a representative work of the 20th century, that it is one of the great representative works of the 20th century, and that to deal with it well, we have to think of it that way. Exactly. It is a work of modern literature. Um, and of course, it's not an allegory. Tolkien's very clear on that, and correctly so. Um, you, you cannot just match up you know, different parts of it to different modern events. No, that's not the way Tolkien's mind worked, um, not when he was composing you know, The Lord of the Rings. But it definitely partakes of modern themes. And even something you know, like the characters. People, I think, often assume that because we have someone like you know, Aragorn, he becomes you know, the High King, oh, he must therefore be a kind of medieval pastiche. But if you look at the character, it's actually fascinating to see the way that Tolkien has brought in a great deal of psychological realism into the portrayal of Aragorn. Okay, sure, he has the confidence he is going to, to become the king. He is the, the, you know, the king of this, this long line of the Dunedain, okay? Um, but as we see him leading the fellowship, he's uncertain as to what he should do. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't know he keeps postponing his point of deciding how they're going to go forward because he he's really not sure. That's a very modern you know dilemma. You know, after we have the uh, the fellowship is broken up, um, and the, you know the orcs take you know Merry and Pippin and Frodo and Sam have gone off you know to Mordor. You know, he he doesn't know what what should I choose, and he he feels he's chosen he's chosen badly. Um, so we have this this sense of you know self doubt in Aragorn, yet he's still striving to do the right thing. He doesn't wallow in it, you know, as as some authors might have their, their angsty heroes. You know, he, he still moves onward. We have definitely that, that sense of purpose. But the way that Tolkien brings in this extra nuance of uncertainty and Aragorn 
trying to figure out, well, what is the best thing to do? That's a very, very modern, psychologically realistic literary technique. Right. It, 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 we have we have to be careful. I think, you're, as you said, as Tolkien was insistent upon, to to over allegorizing things. But but I think that we have erred in the opposite direction by divorcing the his work, especially Lord of the Rings, but but all of the the Middle Earth writings from uh, the 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 context in which they were written, and ultimately you can't really ever do that with an author and and we we should know better than that but but we do it anyway right i mean even he he says you know at one point he says that the the that the lord of the rings is about death and the desire for deathlessness so he's even he's willing to articulate the theme of his own book um you know in that sense and to have a meditation on on death um you know, thinking about he's a man who who knew this theme very well. He was an orphan. Um, he'd lost most of his close friends in the First World War. Uh, yeah, the events of the events of the 20th century definitely had an influence on his understanding of what it means to write a book themed about death and the desire for deathlessness. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. So let's talk about a few of the authors. There's some some jumped out at me, and, and and I will admit the ones that jumped out at me mostly jumped out at me because they're authors that I'm also interested in. So I so I was flipping through looking, and I was looking. There's of course you have a table uh, in in the back that also lists all of the books that you were able to to identify either from an interview or from his writings or. Uh, some some provable way that he owned them, and then you also cite what that is. So so anybody can go look at that and get an idea. But of course, one of the names that jumped out at me is G.K. Chesterton, who who I think a lot of people who like Tolkien like Chesterton. Uh, but Chesterton was a, enough uh, was older enough than Tolkien that that he was already quite popular as as Tolkien was uh, was growing up, and and he read quite a lot of him. He did. Um, and in fact, he uh, he mentions that he um, particularly liked his apologetics writings. Now, I didn't write about this in the book, It's Folks in Literature, but I, I did put it into a footnote somewhere. Um, you know, he really, he thoroughly approved of Chesterton's apologetics book, uh, The Everlasting Man. Uh, and that's, you know, again, interesting. Here's Tolkien. He's not reading just literature. He's he's going into, you know, more of the the cultural engagement that, that Chesterton is doing. Um, but one thing that was interesting about, about um, Chesterton's writings is that I would have thought that Tolkien would have really liked Chesterton's Father Brown stories, because after all, they're a, you know, a, a um, Catholic priest solving mysteries. Tolkien was a great reader of mysteries. He's a Catholic. But in fact, he did not like the Father Brown stories, um, but he did like the sort of more sort of silly and antic ones, like the Flying In. He used to go around chanting verses, some of um, Chesterton's comic verses from that, which is really kind of fun to contemplate. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. I, I was surprised too that he that especially as you as you very clearly show in the book that he was such an uh, an avid reader of mysteries, especially Agatha Christie, that that. Uh, Father Brown just didn't appeal to him for whatever reason. It just it didn't flip his switch on that. But but he did love the comic verse, and I I think probably Chesterton would appreciate that uh, that, that he liked the comic verse. 
Yeah. And really the, the two men, they, they have, I think, a lot in common in terms of their, their sort of overall spirit and their, their attitude. You know, both of them, you know, loving children and having a really a, like a ton of childlike spirits of, of enjoyments. Um, you know, both of them loving Christmas. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot that they have in common, I think, is, is their, their sort of approach. Both of them very talented um, artists on an amateur mm-hmm. level. Right. Uh, and, and that's something we don't often think about Tolkien as a visual artist, um, but that's a really interesting and important part of his of his overall work. And fortunately, one that has been brought more to light now, especially after the uh, the fantastic Bodleian exhibition in, in 2018 that really brought out a lot of his uh, his artwork. Yes, the uh, the art connection is something that did occur to me while I was um, while I was reading your book because Chesterton actually was, was trained as an artist. He was, he was, uh, his formal training was in art, not in, not in writing. Uh, and he, but he did sort of, um, sort of a a caricature type, uh, style of art primarily. Um, but illustrated books, I know he illustrated some, some books, uh, that Belloc wrote. Uh, but of course the, uh, the art that that Tolkien did is is really lovely and 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 stunning uh, in in the way it evokes Middle Earth. Yeah, um, and one of, one of the interesting connections, and this is I think it's co- kind of coincidental. It's not a it's not a causal connection, um, but I've had the opportunity to see a lot of Chesterton's unpublished art, um, it, which was once in the the Oxford Oratory. It's now in the um, the London Gateway of the of, of Notre Dame um, has a new has a had taken over that collection. Um, and I've a lot of his art, Chesterton's art, his landscapes especially, have a kind of almost abstract feel. And they're very different from the caricatures. And Tolkien's art, things like the Book of Ishness, um, which have now been published in some of the, like the Bodleian um, bookmaker of Middle-earth, that's quite abstract. I mean, Tolkien's early art is remarkably abstract in its its you know, presentation. It's not what you would expect from a medievalist. And there's quite a a fair similarity between um, some of Chesterton's landscape art and Tolkien's early art. Now, this is not causal because there's there's no way that Tolkien could have seen um, that. He would have seen at most a little bit of Tolkien, uh, sorry, Chesterton's art um, in the volume The Colored Lands, um, but he wouldn't have seen much of it. But what I think it does show is that both of these men were responding artistically to the 20th century, um, and they're doing it artistically in ways that are engaging with the then cutting edge modern use of artistic imagery. And that's really interesting. Um, And actually, that was another kind of interesting detail that I turned up, was that Tolkien seems to have had more of a favorable view of modern art than I would ever have expected. Um, There's some artwork by Cor Block, um, who did some depictions of... uh, of scenes from the Lord of the Rings, that if you look at them, my first thought was, I hate them. They're very, they're, <laughs> they're very like, you know, very modernistic, blocky, you know, kind of almost quasi abstract. And I thought, I bet Tolkien hated these. Well, in fact, he loved them. He bought several of them to hang up in his own house and even floated the idea that um, Block might be somebody to do an illustrated version of the Lord of the Rings. Talk about something I would never have expected. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, clearly Tolkien had a, a, a much more far-ranging mind 
than we've given him credit for. And I think that that's one of the really important things that you've brought forward in the book. It, it would be interesting to see uh, something done on uh, on Chesterton and, and Tolkien's art, because I, I I'm unaware of anything that's been done on that. And I would, of course, love to see a lot more of, of what Chesterton did that hasn't that hasn't gotten out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really hopeful that, you know, that Tolkien's modern reading will encourage people to start tackling some of these, you know, these these threads, because there's so many things, so many questions that come up, you know, interesting things to explore once we realize that Tolkien really was engaged with the modern world. You know, my task in this book was primarily to, you know, gather up the evidence, um, you know, put forward the evidence and, and, and make an argument of how I saw it as shaping his, his creative imagination. You know, I make arguments for some specific influences. Um, you know, some of them I think are very, are very strong arguments. Some of them are, you know, more exploratory. People may or may not agree with the conclusions that I draw, um, and that's fine. Um, but my sort of primary task was to present a new vision, um, what I think is a more accurate vision of Tolkien's creative imagination. You know, that more than any particular source connection or influence, you know, what I really wanted to argue for in the book is to say Tolkien was imaginatively engaging with a remarkably wide variety of sources, and it tells us something about the way his imagination worked. And once you kind of see that and you see that his imagination is, is quite a lot more capacious and wide ranging and, and transformative, um, I think that kind of insight can and should lead to, you know, reconsidering other areas like his art, for instance, as you just, as you just said. Another one of the, the literary figures that jumped out at me was someone that, that I am familiar with through initially the writings of Russell Kirk, who, who knew this individual. And, and so I was interested in the connection between him and Tolkien through Roy Campbell, who was the, uh, the South African poet. Right. Um, and that, you know, that was, again, an interesting connection because um, Tolkien really, really liked um, Campbell's verse. Um, Campbell actually even made a, a couple of visits to the Inklings. Um, so he knew him slightly personally. Um, he was very grieved when, when Campbell died. Um, but Campbell's verse is very sort of forthright. Um, he has a, a book called um, Flowering Rifle, Poems from the Battlefield of Spain, where he's he's writing about the Spanish Civil War. Um, and it's very, you know, forthright. You know, there's blood and guts and that sort of thing in, in the poem. Um, and then he has another uh, volume of po poetry that, again, that Tolkien actually singles out for praise, which is uh, Flaming Terrapin, which is this almost surreal um, poem that's really a satire on modern culture and its failings. And again, very, very bracing, very modern. Um, it, it's, not, it's not what I would have expected that Tolkien would have liked, but he, he really praises Campbell very strongly. Yeah, Campbell's, uh, Campbell's work has, has obviously fallen out of fashion. Uh, back in the mm, 50s, 60s, Henry Regnery Publishing did a, a collection of his poetry like a multi-volume i don't know if it was I, they may have called it collected poems i don't know if it was everything but but uh roy campbell's stuff's a little hard to pick up i always keep my eyes open for it when i'm when i'm out uh loitering around used bookshops and 
occasionally I'll come across something, but but almost never. But but he was really quite the kind of blood and guts adventure sort, um, almost almost like Hemingway, but of an of an opposite uh, worldview, I guess. Yeah, um, and you know, Tolkien himself, you know, was was very you know sort of quiet and, and mild mannered in his own his own habits, you know stayed pretty much in Oxford for his entire adult life, um, married, four children, um, academic, lots of committee meetings. Um, but just because his life was quiet doesn't mean that he wasn't imaginatively interested in what was going on in the world and other people's adventures, because he very clearly was, as we see with uh, with Campbell. Yeah, and Campbell, I think, seemed to be the kind of guy who liked to, to uh, find himself in the middle of things. And so... Um... Uh, and, and and put himself in the middle of things. Exactly, so he's, a, he's an interesting guy that way. Well, and, and and one other person that I that I have to bring up just from the my own personal interest and in sort of the point of view of this podcast, and that was, and I, I almost fell out of my chair when I saw that Tolkien had a copy of Wendell Berry's The Hidden Wound. I was. Uh, I, I I own more more books by Wendell Berry than anybody else, so I was utterly flabbergasted when I saw that. And that is one where I would love to know more about it because we only know that um, that he was sent a, sent a copy, that he had a copy of it, um, but we don't know what he thought of it, and we don't know that he read anything else um, by Wendell Berry. But I, in a sense, after getting to know Tolkien's wide reading actually doesn't surprise me all that much, you know, at, at this point to say, well, yeah, you know, and that particular book, The Hidden Wound, is particularly interesting in this regard because it's very grappling with the sin of racism and its horrible effects on American culture. And one of the things that I think we we need to see more about Tolkien is that he was very anti-racist. You know, in a, in a time when he grew up in a time of, of very casual racism with children's books that were, oh my word, some of the stuff I read as I was doing my research, pretty bad. Yet he he's, I think, really showing an influence by opposition in a lot of what he's doing in The Lord of the Rings. Um, he makes a, a very overt statement in his retirement lecture that he's against apartheid. He says, I have the hatred of apartheid in my bones. Um, and Tolkien was actually quite politically savvy about um, Oxford University politics. And he, he would have known that making a political statement like that, which would have been noticed. And incidentally, his statement that he has the hatred of apartheid in his bones, he made that statement before apartheid was actually a, a big deal worldwide. He, he says it even before the founding of the British Anti-Apartheid Association. Um, so he's actually making a public statement against apartheid at a time when it was not yet publicly a, you know, a thing. And he uses his retirement lecture, which was, you know, packed full and it was reported in the local press. He uses that to make the statement. And he would have known that people would have noticed. Now he, you know, he then smoothly weaves it in in a kind of, you know, understated English way into his talk about language and literature. But he would have known that people would have have noticed. <laughs> Academics notice this kind of thing. They did. They do now, and they did then. Um, and so I think it really fits that he would have been interested in an American writer grappling with, you know, with after effects of of, of slavery and racism in American culture. Yeah, it's, it's very curious and perhaps um, 
We might be able to see if uh, if Wendell Berry remembers anything about that. Um, maybe maybe get a little bit of information from that side. One of the things you just mentioned, um, you talked about his sort of understated way of of making this comment in his lecture, and one of the one of the key points I think that you that you make um, that has led to a lot of misunderstanding of Tolkien's opinions is a a lack of appreciation for Tolkien's uh, and and very often a British understatement, but also Tolkien's habit of a sort of grand hyperbole, that he will make these sort of um, bold, assertive statements that later in a in another moment he he would walk back and soften. And, and it may even be the opposite of what he thought about something. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I think having stumbled on that, it really helps explain some of why people have been sort of confused about his, his views and his attitudes about things. Uh, you know, I've, this has been assisted by the fact that for probably the last almost 15 years, I, sp- I spent a lot of time in England. You know, for the last 10 years, I've gone there, you know, several times a year, spent a lot of time there, have English friends. And the English do communicate differently than Americans. And this gradually brought to my awareness that Tolkien's Englishness really has an impact on his communication styles. So this habit, the English habit of understatement is a very particular thing. The English sometimes will say the exact opposite of what they mean. Um, It's called mirror talk. um, And it's a totally normal conversational strategy. Um, it's, It's almost a bit startling when you see a couple of people who you know saying things to each other and you think, wait, what? And they're carrying on a perfectly, you know, normal, slightly humorous conversation, saying the reverse of what they mean. Um, and if you understand how it works, you you completely get it. And particularly English use this when they're talking about their own accomplishments. And a classic example of this is in the opening of Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, in which he starts out by sort of downplaying, well, I, I really don't know very much about this field. I'm just an amateur. Let me give my little humble you know, comments on this. And I realized that, you know, I was teaching this essay to undergraduates at one point, um, and they were taking him at face value. They were like, why are you reading this guy? He just doesn't know anything about what he's talking about. <laughs> like, no, he's actually in totally classic English style. He's actually announcing, I am actually a world-class expert on this field, but I'm English. So I'm not going to say it that way. I'm going to say the reverse. And you're all going to suitably appreciate that I'm not shoving in your face but that I am the expert. Um, so w- once you get that, you realize, oh, okay, you got to kind of flip certain things on their head. He tends to underplay sort of his own levels of um, of knowledge and and to be hesitant about sort of trumpeting his, his accomplishments. Um, and yet, as you pointed out, he also could be very hyperbolic. Um, and this is attested by many of his friends that he loved to exaggerate, that he would say the most outrageous things and then back them off again. And again, if you know, if you knew him personally, you would know, oh, well, there goes Tolkien again, you know, and you would take it as that, as that way. Um, but a classic example of how this could actually get him in a bit of hot water is when he gave an interview um, to a couple of interviewers and he they asked him, how do you, you know, compare yourself, say, to Dante, you know, the, the great, you know, medieval author of the Divine Comedy. And, and Tolkien says, oh, Dante can't stand him with his, you know, petty little cities and petty little people. 
And then later he actually writes back to them and he says, well, actually, I'm I, I wouldn't dream of comparing myself to Dante. He was a supreme poet. He backs off. Because, um, of course, Tolkien had quite high view of Dante. He was a member of the uh, of the Oxford Dante Society. He, he presents a paper on Dante to the society. He, you know, but he was, he was embarrassed, I think, by being compared to Dante. So his sort of English sense of... Um, of needing to downplay it kicked in and his hyperbolic tendencies kicked in. So he, he downplays a connection to Dante by exaggerating his dislike of Dante and then realized that he's got himself in a bit of a mess and has to write back to the interviewers and say, well, <laughs> actually, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, right. That's not true. But, but you could see how that, that would, uh, that would cause a lot of difficulty for people doing research who, who weren't, who weren't actually, I guess, doing the the hard work of digging into things. You can pull a you can pull a hyperbolic statement like that out of context, or you could see it and and just think, well, you know, what kind of what kind of crazy person doesn't like Dante? But it it completely it can completely color your understanding and and perception of somebody like Tolkien. Exactly, um, and in a way, I I want to say you know it's like Tolkien. Why did you have to cause this trouble for us researchers? <laughs> because you know, he he's in one sense he's much less sort of media savvy than say C.S. Lewis, who is much better at the you know the snappy you know short piece. Tolkien is so complex. Um, he's incredibly complex as a personality, and and his friends. You know, over and over again, when they when they were asked for recollections of Tolkien, they would say how complex he was and how he was so nuanced that you you couldn't get to the bottom of him. Um, you know, Clyde Kilby, who came over to try to help him um, with the Silmarillion for a summer, said that he could that he could sum up C.S. Lewis, but that he could not figure out Tolkien. He just couldn't figure him out. Um, and Kilby was an American. I think that had a lot to do with it. He just didn't get. He just didn't understand Tolkien's English communication styles. He was just completely baffled by Tolkien, but also by his by his complexity. Um, and I think that means that if we want to understand Tolkien's thought, we have to make a real effort to to see the bigger picture, to always step back and say, what's the context? What else do you say in this topic? You know, even something like, you know, he's very famous for declaring that he hates allegory. We well, said that in a particular context for a particular reason. Um, he was, I think, trying to squelch people from making allegorical readings of Lord of the Rings. And so he says, I detest allegory. But he actually writes allegory on certain instances, um, including the Smith of Watton Major. He even you know, admits it's an allegory. He writes a, a bit of an allegorical key to it. Uh, so he does actually prove of allegory in certain contexts, used in certain ways. So you have to say, okay, well, he makes this very bold, definitive statement, I can't stand allegory. Well, what was he trying to accomplish with that statement? What's the context? We have to do, I think, a bit more work just because he, he is so complex and because he does like to make these hyperbolic statements. <laughs> right. Well, oh, and your your mention of that also triggered uh, th- that that I was going to mention that he was a, that he was also a Wodehouse reader because he he uh, makes a reference to taking uh, a uh, inspiration from Wodehouse for the uh, for the title of uh, of of that work. Yeah, and that's one of those things that if I didn't see that Tolkien himself had said it, I would never have thought of it. Um, I'm 
I don't know the couldn't find out the title he had in mind, but it's it's very probably one of the Smith novels. The because they're they're P. Smith, um, but there's a big joke right. in Woodhouse about the P is silent, like in Ptarmigan. It's a it's a big linguistic play, which would have been right up Tolkien's alley, you know, in terms of you know playful linguistic humor. Um, so yeah, but but the to draw a connection between that and the title of Smith of Watton Major, which is totally different in every way from the comic Woodhouse novels, I, you know, I would. I would never have thought it, but Tolkien says it. So, okay. Again, just goes sure. to show his, his imagination is much more capacious and he digests a remarkable number of things and then transmutes them in ways that are just really astonishing. Well, I, I think that, uh, that, that your work here in this book does do a lot to to humanize Tolkien, I think, to make him a lot more relatable, because almost all of us can find authors uh, that he read and appreciated that we that we might, and and it can also be challenging because we might think, well, why would he like that? You know, like you were talking about the the, uh, the illustrator earlier, uh, but it, it what it means is that we can't take Tolkien simply uh, on at face value and uh, in a sort of two dimensional way. I think. Yeah, and I think that's a good challenge for us because it's very tempting. You know, when we have an author whom we love, it's very tempting to just kind of pigeonhole him and and you know in a kind of two dimensional way and say, well, this is what he thought, and you know, this is what he would have thought about X, Y, and Z. Well, no, he was a very, very intelligent man. He was a genius. Um, he was very thoughtful. Um, he he was very engaged with culture. So we can't just predict. Well, he will obviously think X because he's Tolkien and he's stuck in the past. You know, we really have to look at that, that, that bigger picture. Um, and I think that's good for us. I mean, we shouldn't, we, sh- we should always be doing that for the authors that we read um, anyway, because it's just a good thing to do uh, to have that, that view. But I think especially now with Tolkien, because he has for so long been just assumed to be stuck in the past, to assume to be just this, you know, kind of nerdy academic who doesn't know anything about the the wider world. Um, you know, and again, there are a lot of Tolkien scholars who who definitely know that this wasn't the case. Who've been doing you know research on his engagement with the modern world, but it's definitely the popular view that he was just stuck in the past. Um, and then people think they can predict what he would say about these other topics. Well, it'll do us good to get a more complex view of him. Um, and it will give us, I think, a lot more insight into Tolkien and also into the, into his great works. You know, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, all of his works, you know, the more that we understand the complexity of Tolkien's creative imagination, the more I think we'll see those dimensions and depth in his writings that we might otherwise have overlooked because we assumed they weren't there. I think that this, that this is an important book that, that people are uh, who deal with Tolkien are going to have to deal with from now on. You've, you've brought, um, you've brought information to the forefront that not only challenges the, the accepted biographical norms perhaps, but, but challenges just a lot of the, the assumptions, as you were just saying, that we've made about Tolkien. And so I want to encourage folks to get uh, Tolkien's modern reading. And where can they find more information about you online and and, uh, follow your work? Well, they can find out more about me at uh, my own website, hollyordway.com. 
And they can um, find more about Tolkien's modern reading if they go right to wordonfire.org slash Tolkien, which has linked to the book, um, also has a whole lot of um, videos that I filmed on location last year at different Tolkien-related sites in England, um, where I give kind of little preview snippets about the book and you know, show places that Tolkien knew. So that's a fun thing oh, for that, viewers to see. Yeah, that's that's rough work, but somebody had to do it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will link those things in show notes. And, uh, and it really is a fascinating book. And I know that it's going to be one that I'm going to be dipping into, uh, well, probably from now on, just because there it's, there's, there's so much there uh, that, it, that it almost it, it becomes kind of a reference book, uh, really of of uh, of not only things that Tolkien read, but things that I might want to read because there he's he's some of these books uh, you know I was I was unfamiliar with, or if I had heard of them, I might have dismissed. But uh, seeing Tolkien's appreciation might make might give me pause and cause me uh, to cause cause me to, to look a little more seriously at them. Yes, well, happy happy reading. Uh, certainly, I've discovered some fun fun books to read from from this, uh, and I I, I really want to say like one of my goals for it too was to to help people appreciate and enjoy um, Tolkien's books more. So I am hopeful that you know if people read this book, that you know it will actually make you enjoy the Lord of the Rings even more, um, because I've taken to heart really Tolkien's own approach to literary criticism, which is that it it should not pull things apart um, just for its own sake. It should be you know helping you to appreciate and value also what what um, you're reading. So uh, so I hope that, that will be the experience of of readers to to read this, learn more about. Tolkien, um, and then to enjoy Tolkien's work even more than they already did. Absolutely. Holly, thank you very much for being on. I've enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you.